Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Sepad Pod, the, uh, the Carnegie Corporation-funded project Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization. On today's episode, I'm really excited that we're joined by Gregory Gores, the John H. Lindsay Class of 44 Chair, Professor of International Affairs at the uh, the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University. It's wonderful to, to have you on, Greg. You are obviously the author of, of myriad books, journals, articles, uh, chapters and edited collections, op-eds. The, the list is incredibly long. I, I don't want to take up the entire episode by by listing your CV, but it's really exciting to to have you on and talking about all of your work and and where the Middle East is today. It's a pleasure to join you, Simon. Well, thank you so much. Um, Yours is is one of the episodes that a number of our listeners have been looking forward to the most. So so it's exciting. It's an honor to have you on. I've been using your work ever since I got into this field. So it's a a bit of a fanboy moment for me, if I'll be honest. (laughs) Great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us. Your, your work predominantly focuses on the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf, which is, is quite an interesting way of, of framing the region, very diplomatic, of course. But I wonder, Greg, what, what got you into this part of the world? What, what got you interested in it in the first place? I, I think it was oil. Right. Uh, I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, that's when I got my driver's license. And... Uh, and that was, of course, the age of the of the, the the revolution in the world oil market. Sure. So I I can remember gas lines uh, uh, growing up as a teenager in the United States, and uh, and when I started looking into the the Middle East as an area of study, I was quite struck about, and uh, at least in the United States, about how much emphasis there was on Arab Israeli issues, and how little emphasis there was on on the countries that actually produced this oil that that it was uh, leading to this this big upheaval in the world economy right so i said boy that would that would be a much more interesting thing to do rather than rather than kill more trees in the interest of studying the arab israeli conflict i figured i'd uh, i'd try to study things that people hadn't been studying and went into into looking at the gulf and then it was and when I got to graduate school, it was kind of a question of, you know, do, do I study Arabic? Do I study Persian? Well, if I study Persian, I have access to basically one country that yeah. Americans can't go to. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, which is uh, something of an exaggeration, but you get the drift. Yes, uh, if I study Arabic, I have access to all these places where maybe I could go and do some field work. So that's kind of how I got into it. Oh, wonderful. Well, I think that's the perennial uh, per- perennial dilemma for, for graduate students. Which way do I go here? Of the yeah. two languages that are most interesting and perhaps useful, which way do I go? And I think yours is perhaps the most common um, common initial decision. Although, right. I think I think I think those who can do both are are, are special characters. I, oh, I both admire them and and uh, I'm incredibly envious of them. Likewise, likewise, my language skills are. Um, are not as good as they should be, but I, I chose to go the other way initially, and I've right. been playing catch up ever since. Yeah. But uh, hopefully, getting there. So, right. Just to to check your your undergraduate studies. Then you say you were influenced by oil, but but what was it that you studied as your undergraduate? So I was a political science right. major at a small liberal arts college in uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, called St. Joseph's a Jesuit Institution. And uh, I only took one Middle East course the entire time I was there. Wow. Okay. Uh, 
I, I was uh, I actually thought that I was going to be a lawyer like so many Americans who are interested in politics. Sure. And then I took a I took a, an undergraduate law class and said, this is the most boring thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> right. And, and was and was just uh, just kind of captured by the my international relations classes. Sure. And so I, I thought I was going to go into the U.S. Foreign Service. I took the exam and all of that and uh, passed through the written exam, went on to the oral exam and uh, and and uh, wasn't on the high enough on the list to get a commission. So so it was off to graduate school. Well, the and, policy uh, world's losses, the academy's gain. I yeah, think. Right, thank you. But uh, when they I was in my second year of graduate school, I guess, when uh, when they called me up and said, well, you, you, do you want us to keep your name active on the list? And I said, eh, I'm, I'm having fun in graduate school. Now you can take it off. Right. So I, I was very much I, I got into the, the field more because of my policy interests and uh, then than my kind of pure academic interests. And I, I, I took the one course uh, as an undergraduate in this my, my small liberal arts college on the Middle East. And I said, wow, this is this is really something. This is uh this is a lot of fun, and and I said, and really important and, and relevant for for American foreign policy and for sure. international relations in the world, and and I uh, haven't been disappointed since. Yeah, I, I can imagine it must have been a fascinating time to be to be doing this type of thing, riding at, at the I wouldn't even say at the crest of the wave, ahead of the wave, if you yeah, will. it was it was kind of ahead of the wave. I mean, I, I uh, the Iranian Revolution occurred in seventy nine. I. I think 79 was a real pivot year. The Iranian Revolution, Sadat uh, uh, making peace with the Israelis, the Soviets invading Afghanistan, uh, and the second oil shock, of course, that came sure. with the Iranian Revolution. And so it was it was interesting because I, I think there really hadn't been that much work done on that part of the Middle East. Mm. And, and so it, was, it wasn't a virgin field. I mean, there was some good work out there, but... Uh, but it was it, it, there was plenty of room for for more work. Yeah, certainly. I'm, I I think that that you're responsible for a great deal of it. But um, sort of building on some of the work that that scholars such as Fred Halliday were uh, were producing at that time. But who were the who were the big influences on you intellectually? Would you say when you were there finishing grad school and and starting out? Who were the people that were that that you were looking up to working in this field? So my uh, my advisor at Harvard, where I got my PhD, was a controversial figure named Nadav Safran, right? Who uh, I think wrote a really good book about Saudi Arabia. It's not a page turner, but I thought it was the product of of some pretty extensive research in the in the documents and the publications that he could get a hold of. And I I was his research assistant for some of those years, and so I, I kind of delved into Saudi. Uh, through uh, first at the beginning through this kind of research assistantship work with Nadav. And I learned a lot from Nadav, uh, both positively about the Middle East. And I, I learned some things about how one deals with graduate students that uh, that maybe led me to go in other directions. <laughs> right. I OK. Uh, but I, I think that that Nadav was a, a main a major intellectual influence on me. Uh, uh in terms of kind of a, 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 a both a small R and a capital R realistic mm. uh, look at the Middle East. Sure, I was I was also extremely influenced in my own readings by Malcolm Kerr. Of course, and I thought I thought Malcolm Kerr's Arab Cold War. I still make my students read the Arab Cold War. Good, I'm pleased to hear. Thought it, 
Yeah, I, th I thought that it was a, a way to look at the role of ideas in the international politics of the Middle East without, without privileging them above and beyond the notion of interests. And, and I don't like the dichotomy between ideas and interests because ideas inform interests, obviously. Sure. But, but I thought that, that, that cursed the Arab Cold War. Is, uh, it's always been one of the things I said, boy, if I could write something like that, that would be great. And I think uh, more generally in political science, I was, I was influenced by some of the work on alliances that I've been reading. Stephen Walt's book came out just at the end of my graduate career. Right. Okay. Alliances. Yeah. And, Steve, you know, Steve wasn't a Middle East person, but but I thought he he used kind of neo-realist assumptions to look at alliance choices in the Middle East in a way that was theoretically interesting. And, and I thought empirically pretty well grounded. Uh, sure. Michael Barnett, who's another kind of contemporary of mine, whose work on the Middle East was coming out just as I was leaving graduate school and right when I was uh, starting in the profession. I, I always uh, really liked Mike's work on 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 identity and, and alignment and identity and politics more generally. Likewise, yeah. And, and you know, Mike has a more constructivist uh, 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 bent than I do. Uh, I. I Kind of think of myself more as a neo-realist, kind right. of a domestic realist, uh, who still does think tries to to deal with ideas as as something important. Uh, but I've, I I really like Mike's work, and I think that that had a had an influence on me as I was as I was coming out. So yeah, I, I think that that you know some of the old Middle East studies stuff, uh, like Malcolm Kerr, Bill Quant. Uh, whose work on Arab-Israeli stuff I, I still assign. I assign his peace process book uh, in my in in my classes. Uh, I mean, Bill had a had an influence on me in that I, I saw Bill as somebody who had really good academic credentials, but also was addressing the policy world, which is something I wanted to do. Right. So yeah, I, th I think that those kinds of those kinds of influences were important on me as I as I was starting out in my career. That, it's interesting to hear you say that, because without knowing the, the answer to that question, I can sort of look back over, over the work of yours that I've read and and see how that that fits in, actually, see how, how um, CARE's work is useful and and Barnett's as well, even through this this, this um, neo-realist lens that you that you flag up. So I think you've got that, that interesting balance of, of national interest while also giving credence to to identity and ideology. And, and that, I think, is what makes your work so very interesting, this intersection of the two. Yeah, I think that, that it, you know, there was a little boomlet, I'd say, in the 90s where people like uh, uh, Robert Jackson and Muhammad Ayyub were talking about kind of third world security studies. Mm. And, I, and I think some of that stuff I found really interesting. And I was, I, I don't think it really took off that much, but sure. I think it was it was a an effort to combine kind of a, a realist. I don't know if I, I I would never claim to be a neo realist because I think domestic politics are too important. But but I kind of a realist view of international affairs with with an understanding that the state in Africa, Asia, uh, maybe even in Latin America, that the state was different and in many ways weaker less institutionalized, uh, more concerned with domestic 
security issues maybe than the classic European North American state model that a lot of IR theory was based on. Hmm. And that's that's been something that I've, I've always kept in mind. I And I kind of think of myself as a bastard comparativist too, even though I was <laughs> trained as an IR person. And I, I've done some more comparative work. And and I was very much influenced by the kind of the return of the state literature sure. uh, in, in the 80s when I was in graduate school. Theta Scotchpole bringing the state back in and, and – uh, Lisa Anderson was on the faculty at Harvard as junior faculty when I was a graduate student. And her work on Tunisia and Libya and just uh, working with her and, and being a, a teaching assistant in one of her classes and then being her colleague at Columbia, which was my first job, was a, had an enormous intellectual influence on me. And, and, yeah, I and the centrality of the state and, and state building and, and, and threats to the state and how that plays into foreign policy uh, choices that the that regime elites make. Yeah, and that that's really interesting to hear you say that. That's another of the themes that that I picked out across your work. Maybe this is me sort of prejudicing the things that I'm interested in within the context of your work. But one of the things that I really enjoyed reading the most of of yours in terms of articles, because I thought your your book on the Gulf was fascinating. But the, uh, the the piece in International Affairs from 92 on sovereignty, statecraft and stability, I thought is fascinating to to look back and see the the role and the, the presence of, of sovereignty. And I, I wonder, Greg, to what extent do you think the concept of sovereignty in, in the Middle East and perhaps in the Gulf more so has changed since since you wrote that? Yeah, I think Simon. I think that that's that's a topic that I really want to get back to before I I, I hang up my pen and, and head out to pasture. I think that that the, the the what we see now in the region, kind of the 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 breakdown of states, and and the the intense struggle, which has usually been framed in sectarian terms, but I, I would frame more in terms of of. of Kind of intervention in these weak states politics, uh, the being dragged in and not not just dragged in, and willingly going into these these political vacuums, being invited in by the local players, mm. is is you know kind of if we frame it in terms of 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 challenges to sovereignty, I think it's it's a, a fruitful way of looking at it because you know when Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. Uh, even Qatar and the UAE, and in, in their interventions in these civil wars, they, they, they've tended not to be the kind of let's send in the troops like the UAE did in Yemen. They tend to be who can we back, right? Mm-hmm. Who are our allies? Yes. And, and these allies invite these players in, obviously for their own you know, short-term interest reasons. They want to win the war. Sure. But, but there's, a, there's an affinity, uh, an ideological affinity in many cases that that uh, particularly say on the Iranian side where their you know their clients their allies whether it be Hezbollah or Iraqi militias or even even in the Syrian case see the Iranian role as as legitimated by either some kind of transnational Shia connection or by uh you know, Iran's stance in the rejectionist front, rejecting sure. American dominance, rejecting Israeli dominance. And likewise, I, I, you know, the Turks tried to play that in the post-Arab spring world through a connection with the Muslim Brotherhood, kind of uh, bottom-up populist 
if you will, quasi-democratic Sunni Islamism. And I, I just see that as so interesting and important for understanding the political map these days. And I think that, you know, when I look at the Saudi-Iranian context, the, the one of the things that, that has advantaged the Iranians and disadvantaged the Saudis is that the Saudis don't have those kinds of allies, right? Their quote-unquote natural ideological allies hate them, yes, want to kill of them. Course. And, and I just find it, I find that such an interesting contrast to when people ask me why, you know, I, I always say, you know, in the new Middle East Cold War, the Iranians are winning and the Saudis are losing. And when people ask me why, I say, you know, Hezbollah is, is more than happy to, to be publicly identified with Iran, to be linked to Iran and to act in, 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 in coordination with Iran. Whereas the Saudis don't have anybody like that. So I, I think that the, the issue of sovereignty, so I think we got to look at this at two levels and then I'll, I'll stop talking about this and we can get on to something else. But, Carry on, please. This is fascinating. Yeah. The, I don't think that there's a real challenge to the idea of sovereignty. Okay. I mean, the Islamic State embodies that challenge, but I don't think that they have any uh, I don't think they have any traction. Sure. I think that the notion of a sovereign state system, you know, which I think was more seriously challenged back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s by Arab nationalism. Yeah, I would agree. And 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 maybe was somewhat challenged by a revolutionary Islam as embodied by the Iranian revolution in its first decade. Uh I think that the sovereign state system is solidified, but that the units, right, have not yeah. institutionalized themselves. You have this state breakdown, and and that to me is so interesting because I saw that it, I thought that the, the that the units that the states these quote unquote artificial entities, right, yeah, were were institutionalizing themselves and becoming uh, infrastructurally stronger, and then 2011 comes and we see the big divide, right? Some of these states just collapsed. Sure. Some of them, some of them, kind of rode out the storm, and that I think is the uh, that's that's it, to some extent one of the great comparative politics questions: why some places and not others? Exactly. And, yeah. And that's the IR question: what does sure. that mean for how these states interact with each other? Yeah, and I, I think that that looking at that through the lens of sovereignty actually sheds a great deal of light on it because I think you've identified those those two tiers of sovereignty, if you will, the the regional Westphalian uh, approach to sovereignty, the notion of of uh, a sovereign system of of uh, nation states, if you will, but then there's the domestic institutionalized Weberian model, if you will, and there's all kinds of questions about uh, the application of that in the in the Middle East and I guess yeah. some of that builds on the the, the Robert Jackson um, yeah that's, I was thinking trend. exactly of Robert Jackson's de jure and de facto yeah and and that raises a, a, a bunch of questions that are really interesting I think but I think you can do the same type of thing by saying to what extent are these uh, have they developed the institutions that are viewed as as sovereign or to what extent right. are they challenged by all these these other myriad factors? Right. It's so it's so interesting that really, to me, the only player uh, in, say, the Syrian civil war who who rejects the notion of Syria is is Daesh. Mm. 
even Jabhat al-Nusra, you know, yes. even al-Qaeda <laughs> yeah. has basically accepted that, okay, there's going to be this thing called the Syrian state, and it's basically going to be have the borders that the French drew for it, and, and, and that's the political unit we're going to fight over. We don't want a greater Syria. Maybe we do, but we don't think it's practical. We don't even talk about it, right? We want a, a liberated Islamist Syria. And, and you know, Hezbollah, you know, we're fighting in Syria, but not to create some kind of larger uh, Sham state. We're, we're, we're fighting in Syria because of our strategic interests defined in Lebanon. Exactly. Right? The Lebanese civil war went on forever. But nobody said uh, uh, Lebanon's not the state that we're fighting over, right? There, there, no, none of the Christians said, oh, we want to we kind of, of – of, uh, you know, separate the mountain and 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 East Beirut and the yeah. area north of that, and make a and make a, a Christian little Lebanon. And Hezbollah never said, "Well, we want the Bekaa in the south, and that's going to be uh, that's going to be Shia Lebanon, and we're going to raise our own flag." No, but nobody's done that. Only ISIS really has done that, and and I think that they're losers in this game. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, even in in Iraq, you've got people who were perhaps advocating a a form of, of federalism, but but to me, that's not really a, a secessionist federal model. Right. And the Kurds, who, who probably were the, the, the most likely candidate yeah. to, if you will, redraw the borders, have not been able to do it. Exactly. So what do you think this tells us about the, the region as a whole then? Well, I think that it, it, it tells us that, that both regional elites and the important international actors – uh, have absolutely no interest in in redrawing the map, uh, despite constant, you know, not constant, but but I would say important episodic calls to redraw the map. You know what? This is kind of you, you see this in the in the U.S. about once every ten years. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. some relatively well known quote unquote strategic thinker comes up and says, "Well, what we have to do is redraw the map." <laughs> yeah, 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 and and. and uh, it always amuses just, me the names they pick for some of these places. Oh yeah, as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Shia stand, yeah, all yeah, these yeah. stands, and this stand and that stand, and it's it's. Uh, On that point, Greg, there's uh, there was one from I think it was 2006 by um, Ralph Peters, I think. Yes. Who, yeah. Who'd taken obviously a great deal of time dissecting all of this, but the one thing he hadn't done is dealt with the West Bank and and Gaza for whom he'd said status undetermined. And it amused me that everything else had been dealt with apart from Palestine. Right. right. Well, there there we go. That we could we could one could say that since since 1917 everything has been you know everything has been dealt with except Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think so. So just very quickly because I'm conscious that I've taken up a lot of your time already. Where do you see the region moving forward then? I mean, we've seen in in recent weeks a number of of serious points of crisis and you've written about this extensively. But where do you see things going? So I I think that in the past, you you were always safe in the Middle East by saying, you know, yesterday will uh, t- or tomorrow will be the same as yesterday. Uh, yeah. Because uh, you know, I, when I came into the game, it was all uh, the the conventional wisdom is what a fragile place this is. How fragile, right? The fragility sure. of the Middle East, and it just wasn't true. I mean, from the 1970s up to to 2000, really, you know, you had some marginal states, smaller states, Lebanon, Yemen, mm. that had important civil wars and 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 but everywhere else boy you had enormous regime stability now 
that blows up, right? That blows up when the Americans invade Iraq. That sure. blows up further in 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 2011. But I was I was just you know when everyone said, "Oh, the Middle East always in crisis. The Saudis are going to fall. How can the Saudis stay in power?" I said, yeah. "Look, these guys have been around for a long time, and and you know you're." You're basing this on the Middle East of the 50s when these states were brand new and infrastructurally uh, really weak. And and these are different animals. And so I was kind of very comfortable with this notion of regime stability and kind of the, if you will, the Westphalianization of of international politics. And that there were wars, but there were state to state wars. Sure. And, And there were peace treaties. My heavens, you know, Israel and Egypt signing a peace treaty, Syria and Israel coming really close to a peace treaty in 2000. Yeah. Uh, I just thought this was the Westphalianization, if you will, of the of the region. And and that's broken down. So to me, I mean, I kind of see as, you know, um, I would call it, a, a, a you know, the soundbite would be the Lebanonization of the region. <laughs> I guess so. Where, yeah. Where the where the where the borders remain the same, but effective authority is devolved to uh, to uh, you know, various actors within these borders who fight each other and cooperate with each other, sometimes within the borders, sometimes across borders, but all about authority within these quote unquote artificial borders that the Westerners drew way back when. Sure. And 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 I think that that's going to be the that's going to be the 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 driver, and and we're going to see uh, Salafi jihadism. We're going to see. Muslim Brotherhood Islamism, we're going to see Shia mobilization. I think we're probably going to see, we're going to see Kurdish mobilization, obviously, but I think we're also going to see some non-sectarian movements coming out of the gra- grassroots right. as people just get sick of this, of, 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 of the status quo. Sure, yeah. But, but I also think that at the international level, we're just going to see less, I don't think the Middle East is going to be as central. I certainly get that that sense in the United States, right? Uh, and and I think that that the region, which has been a focus of international intervention and international involvement since really I don't know you know for a long long time, obviously, but but from an American perspective, certainly since the seventies, mm. uh, I think you're going to see just less American involvement. It's not going to happen tomorrow. I mean, Lord knows, whenever I go to the Gulf and, and my friends say, you Americans are leaving us. And I always <laughs> yes. say, really? I always say, really? <laughs> have, you, have you looked at the Fifth Fleet Base in Bahrain? Have you, have you, have you driven by Camp, uh, camp Arafjan in Kuwait, where there's usually 10 to 15,000 American troops? You know, I, I, <laughs> have, <laughs> yeah. you, have you seen al Dade Air Base? <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, that's but I a, think that, that, that the U.S. is losing some of its stomach for all of this. Right. So, again, that, that demonstrates the, the complexity of, of regional politics across the Middle East and the interaction of all these, these myriad forces at different levels. And yeah. I guess that's where your work is so important because it does such a good job of, of bringing that together to show how, how politics is, is shaped by and shaped through the interaction of all these different forces. So, Greg, I want to thank you so much for your time. You've been very kind and very gracious to talk to us, and it's been wonderful, absolutely fascinating to speak to you. So thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, Simon. Thank you very much.